Hello, I'm Wynne Scutt, and I've come to the University of Southampton to speak to geochemist and gold expert Dr Chris Standish about his fascinating work on the use of gold in prehistoric Britain and Ireland. Chris is currently part of an international network of researchers working on a project that's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. To find out what we know, what we don't know, and what we need to find out about prehistoric gold in the gold-bearing regions of Britain. From around 2400 BC, when it was first used here, and the end of the Bronze Age, around about 800 BC. We'll find out more about that project in a moment, but just now, I'd like to start off by asking you, Chris, how you got into the world of prehistoric gold in the first place. Well, I, I first uh, started looking into prehistoric gold as part of my undergraduate degree at the University of Bristol. Um, did a piece of work on it as part of my, my final, final part of that degree, and that really got me interested in it. Then I had the opportunity a few years later to uh, return and sort of develop that work a lot more, um, particularly the science side of, of how we provenance gold. Um, and yeah, and did, did a PhD on that um, a, few, a few years later, also at Bristol. So when do the gold artefacts first appear in Britain? Uh, the earliest gold in Britain merges around about 2400 BC, so almost four and a half thousand years ago. It was around in continental Europe for a couple of millennia beforehand, um, but eventually reached Britain um, around this time. Uh, and it really started with this quite a, um, a small tradition of making very, very small, fine sheet works, objects, um, things like uh, simple discs with maybe... Uh, cross cross designs on them, um, and then a little bit later these lunulae forms, which are um, sort of mirror the shape of a crescent moon, but doesn't necessarily mean that they have anything to do with the moon. Um, and then over the coming sort of centuries, you get new traditions emerging as different different techniques were developed and, and utilised. These lunulae look fascinating. I've seen them in museums, and they are beautiful, aren't they? And they're not small, are they? They they, they go right across. The breast, presumably, of a man or woman? Or? Yeah, they, um, most people think they were probably worn by people. Um, certainly the use is open to debate because we never really know for sure and, and a lot of them have, are in, in quite good condition so maybe didn't see much use. Um, but yeah, it, it's believed that they sort of were worn across the chest um, in some way, either around the neck or maybe sort of tied in front. And do we not find them in burials actually laid on the skeleton? No, they're, they're actually... Bit problematic as, a, as an artifact for archaeologists because they they're usually found on their own or with other lunulae um, in sort of uncontext deposits. So these are like deposits where we've got nothing else to help kind of date or place it into a wider wider framework. Um, so yeah, they're particularly difficult to to really investigate. And what's your feeling? Are they are these uh, worn by the sort of upper echelons of society? Well, yeah, uh, there's there's been some interesting work by. Uh, researcher in Ireland, uh, Mary Cahill, and she's she's been looking at solar symbolism um, in relationship to the early Irish gold working traditions. So they are, they're also they, well, they have been found with uh, small gold discs as well on occasion. Um, these are widely termed gold, uh, gold sun discs, um, and yeah, there certainly seems to be a lot of solar symbolism in the Bronze Age in general um, around about Europe. So perhaps it links in with 
these kinds of belief systems. So they could be worn by priests or priestesses, I guess, or, potentially, or perhaps potentially. even at a as in a wedding ceremony, you might yeah. wear, wear them there, or yeah, or yeah, just leaders of, of different societal groups. Yes, I suppose it's like, rather like wearing a crown today, I guess. Yeah. So they're made of gold, and I suppose everybody has always assumed that this gold comes from Ireland's got loads of gold, hasn't it? Presumably, everybody assumed that all the lunulae found in Ireland is is from Irish gold. Yeah, um, Ireland's got a number of, of really good gold deposits. There's, there's a working gold mining operation out there at the moment. Uh, there have been quite well-known gold rushes in, in areas like County Wexford a few hundred years ago. And ever since the, the, like the scale of the Irish gold, gold working traditions have been, been noticed, so over the last few hundred years as artefacts have been discovered, there's, there's been a lot of debate about where this gold really came from. And originally, it was sort of believed that it must have been Irish gold just because there are so many more objects in Ireland compared to other regions. But then maybe over the last 50 or 60 years, there's been a few different projects to try and actually scientifically provenance these objects through different, different forms and techniques. So the, the answer seems to be a little bit more complicated than that. And currently, it looks like the, the earliest of the Irish gold working traditions probably weren't made from, from local gold. From local to Ireland. Local to no. Ireland. And this was the topic of your research. Yes, this, was, um, this is what I did in the, the initial stages of my research into gold, and it was developing new geochemical tools to provenance uh, archaeological gold work. So um, looking at sort of the chemical makeup of gold, trying to characterise it or give it a sort of a distinct signature. And then by comparing these signatures between objects and, and native or natural gold deposits, you're able to sort of make inferences about which deposits weren't being used and, and which deposits were being used. So I can see that you're trying to find out where that gold came from, but why is that important? Uh, it, it tells us so much about the sort of societies that were using these metals. So this isn't just gold, but any kind of material. But with particular respect to gold, it's a, ever since it was first used, it's been considered to be a really important and highly prized material. Today it sort of has very strong economic connotations, but in the past it's often been linked to other kind of forms of power or value, so things like supernatural, uh, magical aspects of life. And so to really understand why gold was special at the beginning, um, when it was first used, we kind of need to get a full understanding of where it was coming from. Is it coming from distant places, or is it freely available? You can just go down to your local river and find a bit more for yourself. It really tells us about these sort of social side of um, side of gold working. So how did you use geochemistry to determine the source of the gold in Ireland, these lunulae, these lovely crescent-shaped ornaments? Uh, so I developed a technique called lead isotope analysis. Um, so this looks at the relative abundances of different isotopes of lead. So elements, some elements come in, in different forms where they have different masses. Um, lead comes in four different forms. And by looking at the relative proportions of these, you can, you can sort of characterise these different, different deposits. And it's a, it's a technique that's been used in archaeology for a good few decades now when looking at other metals to provenance them, but it had never been adapted to gold, and that's because of some sort of analytical uh, complications when actually trying to, trying to do the analysis. So I developed this technique and then applied it to a series of objects from Ireland. So these are the very earliest gold objects from Ireland, and collected samples of gold from various locations around the country as well in order to have sort of a comparative database and then compared them, compared them together to try and work out where the gold came from. 
And what was the upshot of all this? There was, was it Irish gold that they were using? Well, for these early objects, the, uh, it, it turns out that it, in fact, probably was not Irish gold at all, which was quite surprising to many people because there are plenty of good sources in, in, the, uh, in the country. But um, of course, if they weren't known about at the time, then they couldn't have been exploited. So where was it from? Well, we expanded this work to start looking at different neighbouring regions. And the, the conclusions at the end of this project was that the most likely source was probably in southern Britain, so either Wales or southwest England, based on the geochemical data. This was because, in terms of the lead isotope compositions, there's a very distinctive difference in Scotland versus England and Wales, because there's a, there's a geological feature that runs roughly where the border is today, called the Iapetus suture, and this is adjoining some really old rocks that lie under the surface. And the rocks on either side have very different compositions, and this gets inherited by the gold deposits. So for that reason, could rule out Scotland, and the, and the analysis really implied it had to be from, from the south. And then based on archaeology itself, it seems like the most likely answer would be out of these two regions that southwest England would be the most likely source, and that's because it's well regarded as the, the origin of cassiterite or tin ore during the Bronze Age um, from around about 2200 BC. Copper objects were being replaced by bronze objects, which required tin to be, to be able to make this alloy. Um, and, and Cornwall has some of the world-leading deposits in, in terms of cassiterite. So you've, you've hit gold, really, in the research sense, because you've actually worked out where the Irish gold, where the gold for these beautiful ornaments like the Lunuli was coming from. It came from southern England, most likely from Devon and Cornwall, where the tin was later mined. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the very same deposits where you find the tin also has gold included, so... It's unlikely that they would have been pulling out the tin and leaving the gold behind. So how are they extracting this gold? I mean, they're not digging mining tunnels, are they? No, they're not. This is why we really don't understand where gold came from. Uh, there are no known uh, Bronze Age gold mines anywhere in sort of northwest Europe. And the, the kind of the belief is that they were, they were most likely exploiting alluvial deposits, also known as placer deposits. So these are just lenses of sediments in riverbeds where heavy minerals collect naturally through just the... The, the process that's going on in the river. Um, and so it's likely that they were just digging up um, alluvial deposits in the river valleys, washing them with stream, stream water in order to separate them out into different fractions, and then they can just scoop out the, the heavy minerals, including oh, well, the gold. I suppose this is rather like panning for gold, when you, when you put it in a, a sort of wok type yeah, thing, and, and, you, and you sort of skim, sluice it round the bowl, and, uh, and then the, the heavy bits drop out? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's essentially like the same principles of panning. How they actually did it in the Bronze Age, we don't really know because we don't have the physical evidence. But one theory is that they would use things like animal, animal skins to, to separate out these, these different minerals. If you say a sheepskin, if you were to put some sediment into a stream and lay it into a sheepskin and lay it in a stream, the power of the water will sort of wash away the sheepskin with, with the wool, with the fleece on yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, with the fleece. Um, it would wash, wash away the um, finer and lighter particles, leaving the heavies, and then you can take that out, leave it to dry, collect the gold at the base. And this is, this is one of the ideas for the, the myth of the golden fleece from oh, ancient right. Greece. Yeah. So have you, has anybody ever tried this in modern oh, yeah, times? You can actually stick a sheep or, <laughs> or the outside Preferably of a sheep a fleece, yeah. in a river full of gold, and it, it'll just attract gold, will it? It would, the gold would just get stuck in the um, yeah in the in the roots of the hairs and 
Oh my goodness. Well, perhaps that's how they discovered it. Just a sheep died in the, in the river and they found all these little sparkly, maybe, sparkly maybe. gold. <laughs> that's an amazing story. Absolutely brilliant. So lead isotope analysis is a fantastic way of identifying the sources for these beautiful gold objects from the early Bronze Age, going right back to 2004, 100 BC. Presumably they were using sort of first-hand gold at that stage. They weren't recycling very much. Does it, does it work for the later periods, though? Well, unfortunately, the, the, the best use of this technique probably is with the very earliest objects. Uh, the actual composition of these gold artefacts does become more complicated over time. Not only do you have complications through recycling, it's unlikely that every object was going to be made from brand new gold freshly mined or collected from a river and there would have been a lot of reuse going on. But secondly, there are a number of other processes that start becoming common in, in the actual manufacture of these objects, including alloying with other metals, in particular copper, from periodically in the early Bronze Age, but from the Middle Bronze Age onwards, this becomes the norm. So they start mixing copper with gold? Yeah, so not major amounts, maybe like quite often 5-10% around that. But Is that because it, it's cheaper or because it makes it harder or...? Could be for any number of reasons, yeah. <laughs> Certainly would change the uh, the physical properties, but um, may well have been for other reasons as well that we, we can't quite get to here. But it does make using lead isotopes very problematic because there is also lead coming in from the copper. So you're getting a mixture of different sources. So it becomes a hodgepodge of stuff that you, you can't really pin down to a particular source. Yeah, absolutely. So your technique kind of goes off the edge once you get out of the early Bronze Age. Yeah, I mean, it's still... It still tells us something because it, it helps us sort of characterise the different metal pools that are in circulation. So you'd be able to see if an object is coming from somewhere completely different to, to all the others in a region. Uh, so it does t give you still information about things like recycling, but in terms of actually linking it to a uh, actual source on the ground, it becomes a lot more difficult. So apart from southwest England, what other gold sources are there, and did they come on stream after a while? So beyond southwest England, there are actually a fair few decent gold deposits around in Britain. There are a number in Scotland from sort of the, the southwest, Dumfries and Galloway area, up to Helmsdale in the north. Uh, and these would certainly be capable of producing or, or sort of supplying a, a tradition of gold working in the Bronze Age. Um, in Wales, there's also a number of deposits. There's a Roman gold mine in, in South Wales called Dolcothai. And with what we know about the Romans liking to move to areas where there are good sources of metals, it's highly probable that they, they knew about this mine because it was being exploited previously um, mm. in prehistory. And there's other, other gold deposits in the north of Wales as well. So there's plenty of options. Well, talking of Wales, there was that fantastic cape, as it's called, the Mould Cape, that's uh, made of sheet gold, beaten out very thinly. But the whole thing fits over somebody's shoulders. There's a hole for the head, isn't there? Yeah. And then it, it kind of sits around the back and the front of your shoulders. And they couldn't have moved their arms very much. But uh, it's often it's been speculated that this was some kind of royal equivalent of a crown or something like that, some bit of a, a royal dress. Now, the mould cape, um, rather later, I think, in the early Bronze Age, we're probably talking about sort of 1800 BC or something like that, it's maybe. That, yes, it is later in the, in the um, early Bronze Age. It's part of a, a slightly different gold-working tradition called the embossed tradition. There's a series of objects that fall into these categories, including gold cups, um, including one found down in, in Cornwall, and armlets. And what's interesting about this tradition is there is an obvious shift in, in the basic composition of the gold that's being used. Um, so the other earlier Bronze Age objects tend to have silver levels of around, say, 8 or 9%, up to 14%. 
but the embossed edition, the, the majority of them, there's a, there's a clear shift upwards, um, so sort of 15 to 20% silver. And that could be interpreted as a, as a clear sign that new sources were being exploited at this time. So a different kind of gold, or they could be just bringing in more silver and mixing it they in. They could be, yes, so they could be alloying silver deliberately. There's very little evidence of silver working going on at this time. And silver is a sort of a natural component of gold as you, found, as you find it. Quite often it's because there are percent levels of silver in a gold grain. So it's maybe alloying or it could just be reflecting a new natural source of gold that's being exploited. And where do you think that might be? Uh, well, that <laughs> th yeah, this object's not been analysed, um, so that's certainly something that would be interesting to do. There are some good sources in the north of Wales. There are some sources not too far from um, where, where the cape was found in Flintshire. They, they clearly had access to a good source of gold. This cape was over 700 grams worth of gold. Wow. Using it. so it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, when you do your sampling, do you actually have to take a piece out of it? Well, it yeah, this is um, entirely depends on the approach you're trying to use. Some objects, like the mould cape, are found fragmented anyway, so that makes it easier to be able to have a piece to sample. Um, the museums let you take a little chunk out, do they? Presumably very small, is it? Well, so, <laughs> I mean, feasibly with that object, that would be a possibility. Um, in the past... Most of the objects I've analysed were previously sampled um, in the 60s and 70s by a German archaeologist who, who did a, quite an early study into the composition of goldwork. Oh, so and you could use the same samples? Yeah, these, these samples remained and, and were returned to, to the National Museum of Ireland, so I could use these samples. For other objects that I've analysed, I've tried to apply laser ablation techniques, and, and this is a sort of a minimally destructive method where you fire a laser directly at the object to sample the material and then that material gets swept into into the device that we use to measure the isotopes on. So um, is that destructive in some way then? It is destructive but, but it, it basically leaves a, a small hole the size of like a pin prick. Um, oh I see. So talking on like a 100 microns or so. Diameter. So the museum curators aren't too worried about that as long as you're getting this immense amount of information That's out of it. Yes, well, it's the information that's the important thing, isn't it, really? But, uh, um, so um, you mentioned the Scottish gold as well. Do you, think, do you think that was being exploited in the later Bronze Age as well? Yeah, quite possibly. We haven't really analysed that many objects from Scotland. We've analysed a few from the early Bronze Age, including most recently a piece of the nose of Trotty discs. So these are some sheet-worked discs that were probably the covers. They sort of sat on... A, another material like button cover type type scenario mm. um, and they were they were found in a, in a grave in Orkney we analyzed one of those and compositionally that lo looks like it's coming from the same source as the Irish Irish gold that has been analyzed in the past so by implication probably southern Britain in terms of later gold nothing has been analyzed so who knows but possibly is this going to be your is this going to be your next research project then well, Chris? It would be nice <laughs> if it could be the next <laughs> what you're going to sample all the Scottish gold and uh, and the Welsh gold? Yeah, well, it would be a really interesting study. It'd be to um, characterise all these possible sources around Wales and Scotland and also the southwest of England. And what about and, the um, continent as well? Well, and the continent. So, like one of the questions still outstanding is that where did the knowledge of gold working come from, and where did the earliest gold come from as well? It's highly likely that before local sources were being exploited, there was gold coming to Britain. Um, from other places, and that's likely to be still around somewhere. So based on sort of the archaeological evidence, good, good options would be Iberia. We know that a lot of the early gold objects, similar, similar ones are found down the Atlantic 
coastlines, so around Brittany and, and down into Spain and Portugal. So there's good gold deposits in um, Spain and Portugal, so that would definitely be a, um, an area that would also be included in any investigation. Might be a nice place to start, won't it? Would be <laughs> and, and, and it's not just the objects in museums that you're sampling, but you have to go to those gold sources. Presumably you go out panning, do you, to get some actual yeah, proper um, gold? In, in the past, it's predominantly been panning in streams. Uh, collected some some samples of actual load, load gold, or this is like mineralised gold in the rock. But actually, alluvial deposits are they're kind of easier to sample, mainly because the river has done a lot of the hard work for you in terms of stripping away the rest of the rock, and you've just got the gold. You're getting quite good at this panning business then? <laughs> uh, wouldn't say good, but um, marginally okay. You get, you get webbed feet, I should think, <laughs> <laughs> standing in rivers for gold that long. Feet. I mean, how many grams do you get? I mean, how, how much gold would they be getting for, for, for a day's work? If you assume that they are um, panning a decent location, then you would be talking grams quite easily, depending on what kind of t technique they're using. When, when we do our field work, we only need to collect very small amounts. We're talking like well below a gram, maybe tenth of a gram and less. So it's, it's, we don't really have to put in the same amount of effort that they would in terms of trying to collect enough of what we need. So it's quite hard to sort of compare that across. Well, I suppose um, you can start to estimate how long it would have taken to make a lunula, one of these lovely crescent-shaped ornaments, presumably a few weeks of panning. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're sort of maybe 50 grams. About 50 days, maybe. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, I, they do vary in terms of weight, but let's, let's say that... They, they were up to sort of 50 grams in weight, then one person in a good location would be able to find that in, yeah, in a few days. But mm. it really depends on the source. And also, like, because we don't know where the gold is coming from, we don't really have an understanding on sort of the social organisation of, of these kind of um, setups as well. So was, was there actually a, a well-organised sort of mining, panning kind of community that was working to, with this purpose? Or was this something that people just did in, in their spare time from farming or other jobs? Mm. And, if they're in a region where there is gold available in streams, they could just go and collect some and then supply it to, to gold workers elsewhere. It's moving long distances, isn't it? I'm, I'm just trying to sort of picture the kind of vessels that they would have been using, the kind of ships, because if, if gold is going, say, from Cornwall or Devon, up the, um, up the west coast, up to Ireland, and this yeah. stuff, some of this is going right up to Northern Ireland? Yeah, and, and Orkney, say, as well. So yeah. All, all, like the, all around Britain. So it's like a shipping route. Now, this, this isn't prehistoric people in coracles, is it? This, this is prehistoric people with proper navigational skills, yeah. presumably sailing ships of some sort. Uh, I guess a bit like the Dover boat, a, a sewn boat, the, the one that's... Yeah, I mean, presumably, there's been a few... Well, there's been a few sort of Bronze Age wrecks discovered uh, in the past. Um, the Sulcan Bay wreck as well. There's, there's no actual boat there, but they've, they've found... Um, the cargo, I suppose, the, isn't the cargo it? Yeah. Of, of metal objects. So mm. clearly, they were they were doing long distance trade, and, and this isn't a new thing for the Bronze Age. Even in the Neolithic and earlier, there's um, evidence of materials being transported long distances. So clearly, bodies of water the size of the Channel aren't, aren't an issue for. for it's, um, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Because a lot of people think, well, you know, when when uh, the pyramids were being in, built in Egypt, the people were living in caves in this country or something like that, or just perhaps were simple farmers, at least for the Neolithic. But actually here we've got not just people having everyday farming lives, but they are, they are investing time in, in beautiful objects that are there to enhance their prestige or whatever. Yeah. Um, but they're also trading quite long distances 
you know, right down from Spain and Portugal, yeah. right up the Atlantic coast past Brittany to, to Cornwall, and then all the way up to Orkney. I mean, the, the, these are tremendous sea routes happening in the late 3rd millennium BC. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's been some work done on a, an, an object found in Germany called the, the Nebra Sky Disk. Um, and this is this kind of quite an impressive copper alloy disk with gold inlays that are representations of the sky. So then there's star constellations, there's moons. And this was, this was found in, in sort of central Germany fairly recently, but some, but some work on this object by um, Gregor Borg, a geologist over in Germany, has also concluded that the gold and possibly also the tin most likely came from southwest England as well. And what's interesting is, is that they applied a slightly different technique. They were looking at the abundances of trace elements in the gold. Um, so they weren't using the isotope analysis not, not that you were using? Isotopes, things like palladium and platinum, so these kind of elements. And, and they've also concluded that the most likely source is, is Cornwall, and they argue for the Carnan River in particular. So, yeah, this gold was clearly moving, moving great distances. Wow, because the Nebra disk is one of the most famous artefacts, certainly in recent years, from prehistoric Europe, absolutely, and it's yeah. absolutely amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of green because it's copper, copper or bronze, yeah. bronze, bronze, I guess, because it's yeah. got tin in there, and, but with these lovely gold inlays of moons and suns and stars and things, yeah. which is absolutely superb. So some of that, the tin and the gold, are coming from Cornwall, most yeah. probably, the, perhaps even the Carlin Valley. Fantastic. Well, tell me a bit more about the current project you're involved with. Absolutely. So I've been involved in a, a project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council um, and led by Alison Sheridan at the National Museum of Scotland and Jana Horrock at the National Museum of Wales. And they've created an international team that's been brought together at a series of meetings held around the country. So this is a mixture of archaeologists, geologists, gold workers and archaeometallurgists. And that's to really take stock of what we know about gold in Bronze Age Britain what we don't know and what we need to find out about, about gold and its use. Sort of from, the, from its earliest use in around about 2400 BC through to the end of the Bronze Age around 800 BC. And we've had three of these workshops and, and the outcome is going to be a, um, a research framework that can really give us the best possible way of tackling our next stage of, of researching prehistoric gold. So Chris, to round off, what do you think are the big unanswered questions that need to be tackled? Yeah, well, beyond um, working out the best approach for provenancing gold from the whole of the Bronze Age, even, even when the more complicated compositions are used, the big questions that we really need to answer are, um, are things like, where did the knowledge of extracting and using gold come from when it arrived in Britain? And we know that gold was probably being exploited in southwest England from the beginning of the Bronze Age, but what about Welsh and Scottish gold, or gold from northwest England? When was this first exploited? Was it exploited at all in prehistory? And can we also identify non-British gold? There's likely scenario that the earliest objects were probably coming in from abroad, or at least the gold was. So whereabouts was this coming from? Maybe they're the same same groups of people that actually introduced gold working to Britain. Um, and then we can also look at aspects such as the tools and techniques that were being used, who the actual gold workers were, um, and really what the, the value or the meaning of gold was with, to these, these early metalworking societies. So this is just the launch pad for something even bigger, yeah, which, which in a way you started with your isotope analysis of the, yep. the uh, lunuli and all those uh, Irish uh, artefacts. We would, and things we would like, like this to develop into a, into a larger project that can do similar stuff, but incorporate these pre-existing techniques, the kind of techniques that I've used, the techniques that they used on the Nebra Sky disk, 
and also new techniques that can get around the issues that we discussed earlier about things like alloying with copper, how do we provenance gold that has got copper mixed into it, um, and really understand yeah, the, the origins of gold working in Britain. It's a fantastic international project. I just hope it goes a long way away. If people want to know a bit more about this, where do they go? Um, yeah, there is a project website which is on the, um, the National Museum of Scotland webpage. And if you, if you Google National Museum of Scotland and prehistoric gold, you should be able to find your way. Um, but we'll, we'll also put a link of it with this podcast. And actually, you can also be found on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram uh, with the hashtag prehistoric gold. This has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much, Chris, and good luck with the future of the project. Thanks very much.